Vielen Dank für die Einladung, dass ich hier sein darf. Und ich muss ja jetzt Englisch dann reden, aber es freut mich sehr, dass ich hier sein darf. It is such a joy to be here um, among you. Um, I've heard much of you, also from Nick Bullock, of course. Um, and let me assure you that we pray for you in Zurich, and I pray personally for you. And it is such a delight now to put some other faces to my prayers and to get to know you. I have met Shin before, but um, Nick is the only one really I have met before. Such a lovely time I'm sure we will have together. And I pray that the Lord would bless our time in the Word, particularly tonight. And this is exactly what we are going to do. We are going to pray before we read in Second Timothy a short passage from the Word of God. Um, it's maybe a bit ironic that I'm, I'm from Zurich, and this is where basically the expository preaching, Lectio Continua, has been rediscovered again in Zurich. But the three days now, I won't do that. I will have a thematic sermon each evening, and I hope you forgive me, but I still hope that the Lord would bless our time together. But let's pray now, and then we read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone without your word, left us wondering what your will is or who you are, but that you do reveal yourself to us in your holy scriptures. We thank you so much that we can study your word, that your word is inerrant and perfect. But we also acknowledge tonight, once more, that we cannot understand your word unless the Spirit of God works in us. And we do pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, each one of us, even the children among us, that they would understand what is being said, that it would sink into their hearts. And Heavenly Father, please, that you would be in our midst, through the Lord Jesus Christ and his Spirit. And we pray these things in his righteousness. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we will, in the course of the study tonight, of course come to the first 16 and 17. And also then on our last day again. But I just want you to note how important the word of God is. As he is recommending the word of God. Especially when they are competing different doctrines which he mentions in the beginning of this chapter and he says the only authority and the supreme authority has the word of God we hear now the word of God second Timothy chapter 3 but know this that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of these, this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, Led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now also, James and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. 
men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The first question I want to ask is, what has or who has authority in our lives? This is maybe not quite a popular question to ask today, who has authority in our lives? A question that is, of course, of an immense importance, because as soon as we know who has authority in our lives, that becomes very practical to us, because we know to whom we have to listen and to whom we do not have to listen. But it is an immensely practical question. And particularly also, the question comes to mind in connection with that, who has supreme authority in our lives? Who has supreme authority in our lives? And that is also practical. Because as soon as we know this, we know really as well where the other authority structures or the other authorities may be placed in our lives. And it does also establish them, but also limits these authorities. So who has supreme authority in our lives? Now, humankind has answered this question often in two ways. One way is that the Pope in Rome has authority. Okay, that is basically that the institutions have authority, whether it is actually an institution by democratic right or by divine right, which was the case with the Pope in Rome. But basically one answer to that is that an institution or a human being has the absolute power and authority. Now, sometimes the, uh, the question is answered in another way, and someone says, well... The Pope at home has all authority. Individualism. That everyone is, so to say, his own Pope and his own boss of his life and has a supreme authority over his life. Well, we, of course, know that this is not the case, but that God, God who speaks in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, he has actually supreme authority over our lives over each of our own lives. And we Christians know this. And I hope everyone here knows this, that God has supreme authority over our lives. But sometimes, even though we know that, we know this, we sometimes maybe in our lives 
practically deny it. And we can do that in three different ways. In three different ways. And that will then also quite neatly give us the three different topics for the sermons I'm giving it here in this um, church holiday. And the first way we can sometimes do that is to leave God's authority somewhat abstract. We, we say, okay, God is supreme authority, but we are actually not really knowing how, how he speaks to us or where we find his authority. And that is, of course, a crucial question. We can, on the one hand, say God is supreme authority, but if we do not know where that authority comes to us, it's pointless and we don't really, it doesn't really have an effect in our lives. So we need to first establish how God's authority comes to us and where we find God's word. And I'm sure you already know what I'm aiming at. It's the Holy Scriptures. But there's also another way, and that will be tomorrow morning, basically the topic, how we can practically deny God's authority is that we understand the Scripture not rightly. That, that we misinterpret uh, his will, God's will. And of course, if we do that, then we also may do things wrongly or we understand God wrongly and his supreme authority is not actually exercised in our lives. And then thirdly, we may believe that God's word is not quite sufficient for our lives. Not quite sufficient for our lives. We need something else to supplement the word of God. And quite often, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Quite often what happens if we have man-made commandments alongside the word of God traditions, what it does, it actually nullifies the word of God eventually. And therefore, again, takes away from the supreme authority of God over our lives. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Lord, he became man. He did actually perfectly submit under God's authority and especially also in all these three realms. He knew that the word of God, the scriptures, is God's authority. He interpreted it rightly. And also, he would listen not to man-made commandments, but to the word of God and believe that it is sufficient for his life. And also, of course, for us, for our salvation. But tonight we want to look at the authority of scripture. Because this is exactly how God's authority comes down to us. How God's authority comes down to us. And I have just two main points. Two main points. Very simple, children. Two main points. The first point is authority through inspiration. Authority through inspiration. And then the second point will be a briefer point. Supreme authority proven. How can we know that the scriptures are the supreme authority in God's word? Therefore, let us look at the first point, authority through inspiration. Our confession says, and I will go into the first part of that, what I'm now reading in the second point, but I want to draw your attention particularly to the last phrase, but I'm going to read the whole paragraph four. Our confession in chapter one, paragraph four says, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to believe and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Because it is the word of God. This is, of course, a very reformed doctrine. It is the word of God. 
together as the second prophetic confession, if I may add, says that also the preaching of the word, as long as it is truth that comes out of scripture, is the word itself, the word of God. But how? How is this possible that the scriptures we hold in our hands, that it is the word of God? How is it possible? Because we know that the scriptures were written by human authors. It is a thoroughly human book. It was written by human authors. How can it be that it is the word of God when indeed Paul dictated to Tertius the letter to the Romans? How can it be the word of God when David wrote wrote lots of the Psalms? How can it be the word of God when Luke was gathering information and putting them together and then writing down his gospel? Now, we Christians say that it can be the word of humans, but at the same time also the word of God through a process called inspiration. Inspiration. And I'm sure you all have heard the word. It comes from the Latin, from inspiro, which is something to blow upon or blow in, to breathe into someone. And that is where the word inspiration comes from. Well, if you have this word, we could be maybe misled what inspiration means. Because we hear a lot about inspiration in our society. So the human or the worldly view of inspiration is not quite the same view as the scriptural view of inspiration is. The worldly view often is, I'm inspired to write a poem. So there's a spark in my mind and and I'm inspired to write something or a piece of music. And then you do it. It doesn't mean it's infallible or something like that, but you had a spark and you do it. And of course, there's maybe an element which also is, is, is in the biblical idea of inspiration, but not quite the same idea. And therefore we ask ourselves, how did that work? How, is, how should we understand the biblical view of inspiration? And we are going to look at some of the passages. One of them I just read, but some of the passages the Bible gives us to understand what it means that the word of God is inspired. And the first one is, and we just read it, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 16, that's probably one of the best known texts when it comes to the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. And verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God has given the scriptures. Well, what are the scriptures here? What does Paul mean here by scriptures? First of all, he means the Old Testament scriptures. In his time, the canon in the Old Testament was fixed. And he knew what he was referring to. But then we see a bit later on that Peter is actually also describing the letters of Paul as scripture. Therefore, we find out that also the New Testament is Scripture. And in the early church history, we learn that actually Scripture or Holy Scriptures became a technical term to refer to the Bible, what we often today say Bible, so the Scriptures. And they are given by inspiration. But the word that is used here is not really inspiration but it is basically that God breathed out the word. You see, that's much more objective than actually subjective. It's not just that God gave an idea and then Paul went off and wrote his own letter. 
No, it's actually that God was breathing out the scriptures, the whole scripture, even each and every word he breathed out, which we have today. And that we call plenary inspiration and verbal inspiration. But how was it, how was it that Paul did not write any mistake? Well, in Second Peter chapter 1, we read that the authors were carried along by the Spirit of God and kept from making any mistakes. They were kept from making any mistakes while they were writing down the Word of God. Therefore, they were able to speak on the behalf of God, like Moses did in the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing. Moses first realized, well, I'm a sinful person. I'm uncircumcised in my lips. How can I speak the Word of God? And then God says to him, I make you God to Pharaoh. I will put my words into your mouth and then Aaron shall speak on your behalf. What an amazing thing that is, that the Spirit of God was moving them along so that they could speak the word of God. But now it is very important to also see, because when we have this view in front of us that the Spirit was moving them along, carrying them along, we may think that the authors were like a robot. Children, do you know what a robot is? Just basically does what you program him to do. And exactly that, and only this. The robot does what he's programmed to do. And you could imagine maybe also Paul just sitting down or dictating, and he's not really kind of there. It's almost mindlessly dictating. It's a bit more the Muslim idea of inspiration, where an angel comes and just dictates to him, and there's no work involved really by the human agent, but just to write down exactly what is being said. But this is also not the biblical idea of inspiration. And I think a beautiful example how biblical inspiration worked many times. Of course, there were sometimes visions, sometimes very exact words coming down from heaven. But more often, we see how the Bible describes inspiration as we see it in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And there we see Luke describing his intentions, why he wanted to write down his Gospel or his account of the things he had heard and researched. And in Luke 1, verse 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, what we see here, how the Spirit of God was working in him, was in a way that was very natural as well to Luke. So Luke had, had the idea, well, I should actually write down an orderly Account. He decided to do that. Verse 3. It seemed good to me also. It seemed good to me also. There we see human agency. But the spirit moving him along. In a very mysterious way often. And then we see that he was listening. And also researching. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. I've heard things from eyewitnesses. 
I've gathered information. And then he says to write you an orderly account. So he was ordering that information. And writing it down. And then of course sending it to Theophilus. So here we see how inspiration, biblical inspiration often worked. It did not exclude work, hard work. Yes, often these, these men who wrote down had to work hard. But then they were protected all along by the Spirit of God from making any mistakes, writing down any errors. The Lord, the Spirit of God, was keeping them. And often also, when you look into the Psalms, we see as well how God was using the experiences of the writers so that they would write them down and they would then become the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ in an amazing way, always perfectly, always without error and without mistakes. It does therefore not, even though it was written down by men, it does therefore not weaken the authority of the scriptures because the Lord Jesus Christ and we always want to look to the Lord Jesus Christ what he said about the scriptures he says in John 10 verse 35 scripture cannot be broken even though it was written down by humans in the Old Testament but the Lord Jesus Christ was saying it cannot be broken and some of you may know Don McLeod a Scottish theologian I will say to my wife, the Scottish theologians are the second best after the Swiss theologians. <laughs> and he was saying in his excellent little book on systematic theology, the Bible and the judgment of Jesus has the authority of law, absolute and infallible authority. It can't be wrong. It can't be false. can't mislead. It can't deceive. It can't be violated. That is the Lord's own testimony when he was discussing John 10, 35. And it is so fixed and immovable that the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means, by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Because of this inspiration, we know that the word of God we have in front of you, in front of us, we know that this word has authority and it has ultimate authority in our lives. The word of God, the scriptures. Now, this leads us to the second point. You may think, oh, well, you have just quoted from the scriptures and how can we know, though, that it is actually the word of God? I mean, you just quote it from the scriptures and it's basically kind of a, a circular argument that you're kind of coming back to the scriptures but give us some external evidences or some other evidences that the scriptures are the word of God and have ultimate authority. And this leads us to the second point. Supreme authority proven. And of course, this question about authority and how can we know that the scriptures have authority and are the word of God is an ancient question. Is an ancient question. In the Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, the church was answering it in the way that was saying, well, the church says that the word of God, what we have in front of you, is God's word. And therefore, because the church says it, we can rest assured that it is the word of God. So there's the external evidence. The church says it is the word of God. 
and therefore we can believe it is the word of God. Basic assumption is the Bible needs external evidence that it is the word of God. And of course, this reasoning is not uncommon to us, even today. It's very similar. Some say, well, science needs to prove the word of God first before we can believe it. We want to see other external evidences that we can believe that it is the word of God. Or we may say, well, only if I feel that it is the word of God, it is the word of God. So we see that man always wants some external evidences that it is the word of God. And of course, when it comes to human documents, to human institutions, or human findings, this is a legitimate question to ask. Of course, when we have scientific findings, we want it peer-reviewed by someone neutral who would actually look into it and tell us, well, this is actually sound science. Or when you come to institutions that someone would actually say to us, well, this is right and not wrong. Or when it comes to office bearers even. Of course, there can be no, like, um, no, no elder to stand up. I'm an elder today. Whether you like it or not, just in myself, I'm saying that, no, he needs some confirmation from the outside to be an elder. I know with the, with the calling of God, it works a tiny bit different, but still, with human institutions, it is right that we would have actually external evidences or external confirmations. But who should approve the word of God? Who should approve the word of God? Who is sufficient to say to the word of God, this is the word of God? A Presbyterian committee? The General Assembly of the PCA? No, of course not. The word of God, the scriptures, is in a totally different category. It does not need external evidences to be the word of God. Do you understand? The word of God itself is in a different category. It does not need outside confirmation. And this is exactly what we read a bit earlier, paragraph 4 of chapter 1. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Just because it is the word of God. And you see that in all Reformed confessions. It is the word of God, so to say, because it is the word of God. It ought to be believed. It's in a different category. And our confession is actually quite amazing. Because it goes into some external evidences. And says that they sufficiently prove already that it is the word of God. But true assurance that it is the word of God can only come through the spirit of God working through the word of God. I read to you paragraph 5 from our first chapter, the Westminster Confession. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture. We don't fully do away with these things. They're there and they're important to some degree. And the heavenliness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies 
and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. It is God himself, through the word, the Spirit of God, which gives us infallible knowledge that this is the word of God. An illustration from the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that, I believe, in John 5. And I have this illustration from Heinrich Bullinger. He was a reformer in Zurich, the successor from Zwingli. And he points to chapter 5 of John's Gospel. And I read verses 31 to 38. And here we see how the, the Pharisees basically want to be, have evidence and a testimony um, that he is actually the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And then Christ says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witness, witnesses of me is true. You have sent, you have sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamb, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And, and this is the most important witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for them. You think you have eternal life. And these are they which, are they which testify of me. Now Christ is saying here, yes, John gave testimony of me. And he did that so in order that you may be saved, verse 34. So the external testimony is not totally discarded, is not absolutely unimportant. But the decisive, the decisive testimony is from God the Father himself, who works through his spirit, and we see a pointer here, has testified of me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you. So Christ makes a reference. The word can only be in you if you have the Spirit of God as well. And the Spirit of God is the one who testifies through the Scriptures, which are mentioned in verse 39. You search, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Christ is pointing to the Scriptures, saying, they give testimony of me that I am the Messiah, and I am the Son of God, and I do not take man's testimony. And in the same category, and this is what Bullinger says after he's explained some of that, in the same way we say of every canonical scripture that it has enough testimony and authority of itself because it is the proclamation of God, even if all men, even if all men, and even the church itself should cease to bear witness to it. It still remains to be the word of God. And the assurance we can have through the inward working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts who works through the word of God.
This was a study about the authority of Scripture. And I have three applications which I want uh, to pass on. Well, the first one, if the Scriptures have such authority, we want to know the Scriptures. We want to know the Scriptures so that this authority would become concrete in ourselves, in our own lives. Again, if you leave it just abstract, you just say, well, God has supreme authority. Many religions do that, but they leave it abstract. And I've myself, as a minister, seen often that also, unfortunately, sometimes Christians, that they say, yeah, God is supreme authority. But then if you speak concretely into their lives, they don't like it. They don't like it. But we want to study the word of God and then change our own lives according to the word of God. Especially because the Lord Jesus Christ himself submitted himself to the scriptures and he lived exactly according to the scriptures. Second application point. Well, if scripture has such an authority and is so certain, this is a comfort to us. This is is comfort to us. Because we do not have to always doubt, well, is this right, what is written down here? Can we trust it? Will this remain? No, if, if the word of God, the scriptures have such authority and are so firm, God's word, and because God is unchangeable, the word of God will also remain unchangeable. And what a comfort is that for us in our lives. And thirdly, the question, do you have doubts? Do you have doubts whether the scriptures are the word of God? Well, I believe the way forward, if you have doubts, is to read scripture more and to listen more to scriptures because this is exactly how the Holy Spirit will give you more and more assurance. It is not without the word of God he gives you assurance, but within and with the word of God. The more we read it, the more we hear it, the more we study it, the more we are convinced this is truly the word of God because the Spirit of God applies it into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that you do speak clearly to us, that we have your word, that we know that Even heaven and earth may pass away, but your word shall not pass away. And if we truly believe what you have said, and especially what you have said about the Lord Jesus Christ, then we know that with that word that remains eternal, we shall also remain eternal and have everlasting life. And we thank you for that comfort. Lord, we do pray that everyone in this room would have an absolute assurance that what they have in front of themselves is your very word of God and that we would relish in it and rejoice in it. Amen.